the, uh, the, the beautiful cold place of Toowoomba and it was pretty chilly there this morning, wasn't it, Peter? Did you have to break the ice off the car? Yeah, five degrees when you left home. Yeah, it was cold. Yeah, it was pretty cool this morning. And what do you do? You're a minister? I'm a chaplain at um, Darling Downs Christian School Fantastic. with my lovely wife. We both chaplain together. So you enjoy that? Is, is, this, is this your first year at Toowoomba? This, I was born and bred in that area. So this, um, um, so, but this is my first year, yes, yeah, as chaplain up there. Fantastic. Actually, I've only been in the job for a couple of months, actually. <laughs> And I think we, I actually remember now meeting you at Case Cape for all the teachers. Ah, yes, there yeah, I was there. Yeah. I knew your face looked familiar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us this morning, Daryl, so I'll hand it over to you. Thank oh, you. very good. Thank you. I'm going to stand down here. Is this where they usually stand? I don't, I don't stand still. I, I move around. My, um, I used to give my mother a really hard time. Um, back, this was back because I've got a few years on me now. ADHD was not even thought of back then. Um, but these days, I'm not so much got the, the hyperactivity, um, maybe a little bit, um, but I do get distracted a lot. What was I talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, a little bit about myself. I was not born or raised a Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist. I was a heathen. Uh, I was born in a heathen home. I went to a very small school um, that was full of Catholics and Lutherans, and I think I was probably the only heathen in the school. Um, and so Christianity just, just wasn't my thing at all. And when I got to, um, to about 15, I uh, had a friend who was an Adventist, and he introduced me to a different sort of Christianity, a Christianity that sort of made sense. And I started to, to see God uh, differently, and Jesus started to make sense. And then when I was about 17, I met my lovely wife, who was born and raised an Adventist, and then things really started to make sense. <laughs> I sort of, yeah, liked uh, hanging around the church. It was good. We got married uh, soon after. I think I was 20. She was 17. Um, we've had a few kids. Kirsten, who is now a teacher here at um, North Pine, she teaches year two. She started only what, a couple of months ago, a month ago. She only knew. My son is at Avondale. Um, and then we've had how many foster children over the years? <laughs> Countless Countless, about 26, I think. And we have two at the moment. A little girl who's here, Tiffany, she's gone out. I hope she um, behaves herself. I'm sure she will. I went to Avondale. I didn't finish high school. Well, I sort of finished high school just. Um, you could skip out when you were 15. Um, so I did that. Um, I think I may have just passed school. I don't know how, um, but I did. And then at the age 35, I went to Avondale College which <laughs> when you don't have much education and then go to Avondale, that was, that was pretty tricky. Um, I've ministered for a few years and now I find myself at um, chaplaincy in Toowoomba. I love Bible stories. And when I read Scripture, you know when you get a story, I find it really frustrating because the story that you have is very limited. 
and you don't get much background and I have this crazy imagination and I just, you know, I'd love to know what happened before that story and what happened after the story. You know, where are those people? What happened years after? And this morning I want to, I'm going to, we're going to look at a story and it's found in John, John chapter 8. And I want to build a little bit of background to this story. Because to me this story paints an incredible picture of Jesus. And like I said, my imagination, I think how that day would have begun. Probably a day much like this. In fact, the time of the year was around October. Late September, early October, we know that. Probably a beautiful day, much like this one. Beautiful morning. Except in the normal northern hemisphere, it would have been uh, going into autumn, not we're sort of approaching spring. Late September, early October. Autumn. It was a very festive time of year. There was a lot of rejoicing in town. In fact, town would have been absolutely jam-packed full of people because it's a time of their greatest festival, their most rejoicing festival. Uh, People from, from countries far and wide would have come to Jerusalem. Everybody would have been there. And there was this young lady, and I guess she woke up that morning thinking, what a great day. What am I going to do today? Do I go to work or do I not go to work? I think of that every day. You get a, <laughs> do you really want to go to work today? And she had that option. Do I go to work or do I not, you know? Work was good. Work was, was necessary. She earned really good money, really good money. Not a job that most people would want to do. But she had a dilemma. Do I go into town to listen to Jesus or do I go to work today? And I guess she decided that she would go to work. A little bit of background about this woman. She knew Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that that Jesus quite often visited her home. She lived with two other siblings, a brother and another sister. So she had heard Jesus before. In fact, she was quite friendly with him. Maybe that was why she decided to go to work, was because, hey, you know, I've sort of heard him before. He's been in our house a number of times. I think I'll go to work today. So she goes to work. And we pick up the story in John chapter 8. I've got no fancy slides or anything else. So If you've got your Bibles, if you'd like to open them to John chapter 8, starting from verse 1, and it says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, which was, if if you can picture Jerusalem, it's the Mount of Olives is an olive grove, and it's geared down through this little bit of a gully, and then on the other side of this gully, it's not mountains, it's just little hills. Mount of Olives is nothing tall, it's quite, 
quite small. But you go down and you go through this bit of a valley and you go up and there's the temple. And Jesus was there at the temple. Early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. And a crowd soon gathered. And he sat down and he taught them. And he was speaking. And the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And then they put her in front of the crowd. And like I said, this is festival time. A lot of people. Thousands of people. And they bring in this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now if you're caught in the very act, do you think they would have allowed her time to get dressed? No. They would have dragged her out of the bed. She would have been lucky to grab hold of a sheet to cover herself. And they dragged her out and they put her in front of the crowd of people. People, the religious people, people that should know about God. See, Jesus, <laughs> they didn't like Jesus. In fact, when you read chapters before, they want to kill him. <laughs> they, want to get rid of him. they really hate him. They hate him because he challenges them. And we don't like to be challenged, do we? We really don't like to be challenged, but when you're a religious leader, you really hate to be challenged. You hate your authority to be challenged. You hate your beliefs to be challenged. You hate your integrity to be challenged. But that's what Jesus did. He challenged them and they, they, they didn't like him. And they thought of any way that they could possibly get rid of him. And they thought they had the perfect trap set. Because being, being the religious, they, they knew the law and they knew that, that being caught in adultery meant that you were to be stoned. That's what the law of Moses said. But see, this Jesus, he was preaching this, this about mercy and grace. And they knew that if they'd brought this woman who Jesus knew... Bring her in in front of him and say, hey, the law says that she should be stoned. But what do you say? Oh, man, we got him because he won't. He'll, he'll want to show her mercy. He'll want to let her off. And when he does, when he does, we've got him. We've got him because that goes against the law of Moses. So therefore, he is then sinning. Therefore, we can then stone him. We can have him run out of town. We got him. Because if he says, no, stone her, we've got him anyway. Because what does that say about his mercy and love? <laughs> we got him so good. We have got him so good, they thought. So they bring her in. Jesus, what do you say? It should happen. 
Could you imagine what it would have been like being her? They didn't care about her. They weren't interested in her. They couldn't care less. They were after him. She was just a pawn in their little game. You ever felt like that? You ever felt as though your life doesn't matter? That your life is about to end and nobody cares? Nobody seems concerned about what you're going through? You ever felt like that? Could you imagine what it would have been like in front of this big crowd of people, exposed, exposed physically, exposed mentally, exposed spiritually? (laughs) I dare say she would have wished the ground had opened her up and swallowed her. <laughs> that, would have been, that, would have been, that would have been mercy. If the ground would just open up and swallow me whole and just get rid of me out of this predicament. Because there's no way out. There's no way out for me. She's just waiting for those words. Stone her, hoping that the first one does the job, that the first one's a direct hit that just ends it, finishes it. I've had enough. I just want it to end. But then something interesting happens. You see, Jesus... (laughs) He doesn't answer him, but instead he kneels down in the dust of the ground and he begins to write. He begins to write in the dust. And it's interesting what the Bible says. In verse 6, it says that they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger... And he kept, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Give you a little bit of history, a little bit of background to this story. You see, if you were going to accuse somebody of a crime, you've got to have two witnesses. It's what the law says in Leviticus. You've got to have two good witnesses to accuse somebody of a crime. Well, did they, have, did they have witnesses? Well, yeah, they had some good witnesses. They were there. <laughs> they were involved. Some pretty good witnesses they got. So according to the law, they got it. Yeah, we got the witnesses. However, if you're going to be a witness... You can't be related. So if you're related to the person, you can't be a witness. 
But that's okay. They weren't related, so that's all right. However, you, you, could, you couldn't have had any disputes with that person. So you, you can't have any, any background with that person where that's involved in any dispute because then you'd be unbiased, you see. So if you're there, like Jack, Jack, you, you can't be a witness because I've seen you fighting with this person before, so I'm sorry, Jack, but you cannot. Jack, you've got to go. You cannot be a witness. If you're a person of disrepute, so if you're a bit of a troublemaker, I'm sorry, you've you got a history of troublemaking, you, you can't be a witness. You've got to leave. If you were a sinner yourself, you couldn't be a witness. So as Jesus is there writing in the ground, Verse 9, it says, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. See, as Jesus is riding in the sand, in, in, in the dust, the crowd, the crowd could see what he was riding. It doesn't say that as they saw what Jesus was riding, it says, when they heard. You can imagine the crowd going, oh, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, the accusers had to leave because they were disqualified as witness. A Jewish historian once said that if there was one stoning, because I don't know, I, I always grew up with the belief that this was a common thing, this stonings. But a Jewish historian once wrote that if there was one, one stoning in seven years, it was a murderous seven years. One in seven. Didn't happen. Because there was a loophole in the law. That you couldn't be a witness if you fell into any of those categories. And it got to the point where <laughs> Jesus says to the woman, where are they that accuse you? Was she guilty? Guilty as. However, there was no one to accuse her. There was no one because they were disqualified. They were disqualified. One by one they had to leave. Until no one was left. No one was left. I could just imagine Jesus there at the temple. Jesus is there at the, the, the temple, this building, this beautiful building that had a purpose. I mean, what was the purpose of the building? I mean, it wasn't a church, it wasn't a hotel, it was a temple. And this temple had a specific purpose, it had a reason for being, and the reason for being with this temple that they would have used 
at this festival because that's what it was there for. Because during these festivals, three times a year, the first one was the Passover, the second one at Pentecost, and the third one at this feast. You'd have to bring your sacrifice to the temple for forgiveness of sin. You would bring your lamb to the temple for the forgiveness of sin. That's what it was there for. That's the purpose of the temple is forgiveness of sin. That's where as a person you come to for restoration of your soul. You come to the temple. You couldn't go anywhere else. You couldn't take your lamb and go onto a hill and build your own little altar. You couldn't do that. It could only be done by law at the temple. And here they are at the temple. And I could just imagine Jesus thinking, as he's sitting there on those, on probably, I could imagine him sitting on these, on these steps going up into the temple. And as they bring this woman to, to have condemned, that's what the whole purpose was, to have this woman condemned. And I could imagine Jesus sitting there looking back at the temple and looking at these guys and looking at the temple and then looking at these guys thinking, you don't get it. You you, you don't get it because as John The Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming down to be baptised, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, John sees Jesus coming down to be baptised and John says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb. For 2,000 years they've been bringing the Lamb to the temple to have their sins taken away. And now they have the lamb at the temple and they're bringing a woman to be condemned. And Jesus would be scratching his head going, you don't get it. You don't get it. You come to the temple for condemnation There's no condemnation in the temple. There's none. There never has been. There has never been condemnation at the temple. You don't come to the temple for condemnation. You come to the temple for restoration. If you were bringing this woman to me to be restored, that would be the right thing to do. That's what I'm here for. But no. Condemnation? You want me to condemn? I can't condemn. We all know John 3.16. In fact, a number of us here could recite it. But do you know John 3.17? Turn in your Bibles, John 3.17. John 3.17 and 3.18. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, same word, 
but to save the world through him. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. Did you get that? Any person that believes in Jesus, there is no judgment or condemnation. There is none whatsoever. I'll say that again. To any person that believes in Jesus, there is no judgment or condemnation. He goes on to say that those who do not believe in Jesus are condemned already. You're condemned already because you don't believe. So here they're bringing the woman to Jesus for condemnation and Jesus is scratching his head going, you don't get it because we're at the temple and the temple's about restoration. The temple's a place to have your sins forgiven. It's not to be condemned. It was never put here for condemnation. It was never meant for condemnation. It's only meant for restoration. And in fact, the whole feast, let me talk a little bit about this feast, this party that they've been having for the last probably eight days. And it's a joyous feast. It's a time of rejoicing. It points forward. It was a feast given to point forward to the restoration of this world that we live in today. We look forward to this restoration. We see it as the second coming. We see it as Revelation chapter 20, 21 and 22 this, this world being restored back to its former glory, that's the feast that they were participating in. The feast of restoration, sin taken care of and all things restored. That's what they were partying for. And they're coming to bring this woman for condemnation and Jesus is going, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. You come to the Lamb of God. When you come to the Lamb of God, I can only do one thing, and that's forgive you of your sin. That's what Jesus would be thinking. I can only forgive. I can't do anything else but forgive. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not put sin on. I don't put condemnation on. I'm here to take it away. So when Jesus finishes writing... In the sand, he looks up and he says to the woman, where are your accusers? And they go, well, <laughs> there is none. And see, if there's nobody to accuse, it doesn't matter how guilty you are, if there's nobody to accuse you, you're let off. You're actually set free. You know, some people will say that this chapter in Scripture is, is the conflict between law and grace. No, it's not. It's not at all. It's about grace being in the law. It's about a law being established with grace. Yeah, the law does condemn, but the gift of God is eternal life. See, God had made a way of escape 
Yes, the law did condemn her, but the law also set her free. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. They just didn't get it. Wouldn't it be good if the church did the same? You know, if only our pastors, us as pastors, see things and do things the same. When, you know, when people come, accusers come, if we only looked at the integrity of the accusers. Is there any, is there any background, hostility? Is there any, is there any, uh, you know, dubious character with these witnesses? Are they worthy to be a witness? Are they related? Is there feuding going on? Is there some other problem? And have a good look at the witnesses first, the accusers. Have a good look at the accusers to see, hey, there's something going on here in the background. Where are your accusers? The woman... I guess, would have felt a lot of relief. A lot of relief. You know, it's interesting, even when Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you, there's no part where she actually asks for forgiveness. Do you see it there? It's not written there. Now, I dare say she would have been sorry. But see, Jesus couldn't condemn. I can't do it. It's not what I'm here for. It's not my purpose. What's our purpose? What's our purpose as Christians? What's our purpose of leaders? Of religious leaders? Where do you see yourself in this story? Do you see yourself like the woman? Yeah, you may not be mixed up in the same thing that she's been mixed up in, but do you feel as though the world has treated you like a a pawn piece in a game of chess. You're dispensable. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested in you. Quite happy to walk all over the top of you. Do you feel like that? You ever felt like that? Do you ever feel like just people just, just couldn't care less about who I am? I don't mean anything to anybody what about a person in the crowd that's looking on thinking you know I'm only here I just want to just get a glimpse of who Jesus is I just want to get a taste of Jesus you might be like that you know somebody's sort of detached to to what's going on you're just seeing man I'm gonna this is gonna be interesting how there's this person who claims to be God, how he deals with this. How is God going to deal with this? This is a good one. 
How is he going to get out of this one? You see how people get dealt in churches. How they get burned up. They get crucified. And you think, man, do I want to be a part of that? But then you see a real picture of Jesus. A real picture of God. I haven't come to condemn. That's not who I am. I don't condemn even the vilest of sinner. I cannot condemn that person. I don't care what you've done, where you've been. I don't condemn you. I've come to give you life, not take it away. I'm going to do everything possible to give you life. Why would I want to take it away? That's the Jesus I see in this story. I see a Jesus that's so down to earth that while that woman was there on the ground trying to bury herself, she gets to, he gets down into the dirt with her. And it doesn't matter where we are, what we've done. We could feel like the, the, the woman there without any hope of a future. I don't have any hope. I've got nothing. I just want to end now. I bet you she had absolutely no idea that 2,000 years later we'd be talking about her. That she would actually become probably one of the most popular, and the most talked about people in Scripture. I bet you she had no idea that that was going to happen to her on that day. Because her life turned around. She could see her need of the Lamb of God. The Lamb that has come to take away the sins, her sins. That crowd could see that here was the Messiah, the God. the real God, a Jesus that had become very clear. There was no more guessing because they were there to see because there were a lot of questions in their mind leading up to this on who he was. There were a lot of doubts on who he was. There were a lot of questions about who he was. And it would have finished at this story. They would have seen very clearly, though, that this is not the God that certain ones have shown us, that have told us about what God is like. But no, this is a God that I want. This is a God that I can, I can be a part of, that I want to be a part of. This is a God that doesn't, doesn't cast me aside, that doesn't see me as unimportant, as trivial, as, as just a piece that is just 
broken, to be cast aside, to be used, to be abused. No, this God is a God that accepts, that draws in, and most importantly, makes whole, restores. I love that. Restores. What's it like to be restored? You know, there's, um, I was out travelling around the bush one day and I come across this old farm. And uh, I went into this old farm because and, and, uh, he had old cars and old tractors lying around in his paddock everywhere. And I went in there because I was, I was looking for some firewood, actually. He had some firewood. And I got to talk to him. He was about 80. He was very sick, about 80 years old. And I just started talking about all his, his old stuff around his paddock. And, and he, he said, do you want to have a look? I was like, man, I was like a kid in a lolly shop. Man, <laughs> show me. And we went out, we looked at these old John Deere tractors and oh, we looked at all sorts of stuff. And then I saw this, this thing and it looked really good. And it was in long grass. And I said, oh, can I go and have a look at that? He said, yeah, come and have a look at that. And it was a 1927 NAS ambassador. And you're going, I have no idea what that is. I had no idea myself. NAS ambassador, what's that? But it looked really good. You seen, you've seen the 101 Dalmatians? Have you seen that movie? Of course you have. It's okay. You can admit it. You've seen the car in that movie with the really long bonnet? It was like that. It had a tw- uh, uh, an eight-cylinder engine, but it wasn't a V8. It was in-line eight-cylinder engine. Yeah, now you're interested. V8. And it had, and it had uh, two spark plugs for every cylinder. This thing, w- w- that's why the long bonnet. And I said, this car's got some history. Can you tell me how long have you had this car? And he says, my father bought this car. My father bought this car. This car was bought into Australia in the Second World War by an army general from the United States. He said there was only two of these cars ever bought in and made into left-hand, what are we over here, left-hand drive? Right-hand drive, we're right-hand drive. Depends where you're sitting. Okay, we're right-hand drive. It was made into right-hand drive. He says there was only two inline V8s bought into Australia and made into right-hand drive. And I said, "You've got one." He said, "Yeah, I've got one." I said, "What happened to the other one?" And he says, "It burnt to the ground. Caught fire and burnt." You've got the only NAS ambassador in Australia, right-hand drive. In the country. And he said, yep. And you've got it sitting out in a paddock in long grass. Has the suicide doors on it. Oh, it's amazing. It's a great looking car. I said, would you sell it? And he said, probably. I'd probably sell it. And I thought, oh, I'm going to look into this. I'm going to look into this. This is a great car. This is a great car. And so I went back into town And I did a little bit of research, as you do. You do some research. And I worked out to restore this car would cost me $130,000 to $150,000. I know. I don't have that sort of money. And it would take ages. And I don't have that sort of time. And I don't have that sort of commitment. (laughs) Because that's not really me. 
I can't restore anything because I don't have money and I'm not willing to sacrifice my time. Because when you're going to restore something, you've got to count the cost. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take a lot of effort. But I mean, the end product, oh man, oh man, you're still sitting in the paddock. Still sitting in the paddock. I still dream. I still dream. I'm not going to tell you. Because <laughs> maybe one day, maybe one day. Um, when Jesus, when this world fell into sin, and Jesus looked, at the restoration project. He could dream, he could look into the future and he could see what the end product would look like because he made it. He made it in all of its beauty and splendor in the beginning. I know what it could look like and he could look forward into the future and he could see it restored. He can look into the future and he can see you restored. It doesn't matter how broken you are, how worthless you feel. He can see the value in you, in this world. But just as I look upon that car, and you know, I can see the beauty, I can see what it'll look like. But it comes at a cost. It's going to take sacrifice comes at a huge cost and Jesus says I'm willing to pay I am willing to sacrifice I am willing to give my life to see my people restored and as he uh, <laughs> looked upon that woman as there in the, in the dust of the ground. What we see is a woman caught in adultery, a woman that's in a mess, a woman that's very broken. I mean, you don't get into a profession like that if you're not broken. You don't find yourself in situations like that if you're not broken. She was very broken. But Jesus doesn't see that. He didn't see that in her, but what he could see was a woman restored. He could see a woman restored. When he looks at you and me, he sees children restored. He doesn't look at our imperfections. He doesn't look at our impurities. He doesn't hold that against us at all because he knows, he knows he knows where we are. He knows what we've been through. That guy started to tell me some of the stories about that NAS ambassador. Oh, he had some stories. I could have sat there all day listening to his stories. Had a couple of bullet holes in it. <laughs> and I said, did some kids shoot it up? He said, no. He says, there's a really good story behind that. It had some scars. But every scar had a story. Our scars have stories. We have bullet holes. We have cracks. 
But Jesus doesn't look at that. He doesn't. He goes, I can fix that. You know, those bullet holes, you can fix the bullet hole. You can fix the scars. You can fix the broken. You can fix all these things. You can bring it back to new. That's how Jesus sees us. I can fix that. Whatever it is that you're going through, I can fix that. That's what Jesus is saying. I can restore that. I can make that like new. What time do we finish? Do we finish at 12? What time do we finish? Nobody's saying anything. You don't finish here, you just keep going until we just walk out the door, pretty much like that. Because, I mean, if you want me to speak for an hour, I'll speak for an hour. If you want me to speak for 45 minutes, I'll speak for 45 minutes. You want me to speak for half an hour, I'll speak for half an hour. You want me to speak for 15 minutes, I'll speak for half an hour. (laughs) We'll finish it. Can you see the picture of Jesus? That's our God. That's the God we have come in here today for. That's him. He wants to restore your life and mine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. Don't behold a God that wants to condemn. That's what the devil wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that that, that God is a God that is judgmental, that wants to bring lightning down and strike you on the head for every bad thing that you do. He's worthless. You don't measure up. But no, we, we love a God that goes, yeah, I know you can't measure up. I know that. And I've taken that into consideration. I know you're broken. Now yeah, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to restore that. Because I want to make you whole again. We worship a God that wants to make us whole again. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's what the Bible is all about. From beginning to end, if you said, can you put it in one word? I know a lot of people say love. And that's good. That can be your word. I love that word too. But my word, if you ask me, can you give us the one word from Genesis to Revelation? What's the word? It's restoration. It's God restoring that which was broken. That's what it's about. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you for Jesus. I want to thank you that he came into this world to become a person just like me. But he didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to destroy. He didn't come to tear apart. But he came to restore. He came to fix that which was broken. And Lord, I am broken We are broken. And all we can do is is pray for the ground to open up up and swallow us whole. But no, you want to lift us up. And you want to restore us to where you want us to be. You want to take all of the broken pieces and you want to put them back together and you want to make us whole again. We want to thank you and praise you that you are 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that takes away my sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.